0: In the beginning, there was radio. Turn your radio on, turn your radio on, and
1: listen to the
0: music in the air. Entertainment for the masses. You
1: heard music, you heard events, uh, you heard a football game. Right now. At the
0: twist of a dial. Technically, tempo. With a beat,
1: Fantastic.
0: The music was loud, the prizes were huge, and Rocktober was king. Welcome ladies and gentlemen to the eighth wonder of the world. It's basically this intangible thing that
1: reaches its hand down my throat, through my esophagus, and just plays with the strings of my heart. Today... Entertainment has evolved. Radio is yesterday's news. TV repeats itself into
0: oblivion. And podcasting. Yeah, we're about to get started. Is the New
2: Black. So here on the Mojo Radio Show, we're giving
0: our own to the rockingest month on the planet. Hey guys, this is
2: John Karabi from the Dead Daisy. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. This is Tate Fletcher, Tate Spike. Hi there, I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Batman.
0: Hi, this is Ivor Davies from my house. And it's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show.
1: Outstanding. <laughs> The
0: next
2: 31 days will take you from the sports field to the battleground, from the boardroom
0: to the recording studio in celebration of all things Mojo, along with all the trimmings you'd expect.
1: October starts now. Hey everybody and welcome to Rocktober 2018 on the Mojo Radio Show. Big month for us, probably our biggest month of the year. It's a month where we go long, quite long for, and we run our best guests, some great lessons of rock, There's special features, maybe a laugh or two, and what's guaranteed is loads of learnings. So, to get into Rocktober, let's say day to our Rocktober producer. Welcome to Rocktober 3, mate. It's uh, getting away from us, isn't it? I know. Number three, and we're halfway through already. Crazy. Well, thankfully, there's five. So, we <laughs> have we've thankfully? Ex- mm, okay extra thankfully. bonus thrown in for Rocktober <laughs> 2018. So, um, let's get into it. The Mojo
0: Radio Show.
1: Our special guest this week is American author, entrepreneur, and photographer James Clear. James is a guy behind the hugely popular JamesClear.com. And if you know podcasts and you've been around people who talk about performance and productivity, then you will know the name James Clear. Basically, JamesClear.com is the home of his life's work, and mostly he writes about the habits of human potential. So this is a guy that's about finding out how can we live better. And I wanted to get James on the show for two reasons. First, he discussed the habits and rituals of athletes and artists and business leaders to tease out what are the common characteristics that make these people the best at what they do. And then secondly, to discuss his new book, which is out this week called Atomic Habits, which gives us the proven framework from proving ourselves every day, which is essentially, let's face it, folks, about getting your mojo working. So with all that being said, James, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Hey, thank you so
2: much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So when people talk to you, James, and ask what you do, how do you like to reply?
2: I identify as an entrepreneur and as kind of like a craftsman and an artist, someone who, you know, likes to create things and hopefully those things are helpful and useful to others. But the simplest way to describe what I do is that I'm an author. Um, so, you know, I just recently wrote this book, *Atomic Habits*, and uh, and that's kind of the the quickest summary is that I write about habits and decision making, and my job is to take scientific, evidence based ideas and translate them into practical actionable strategies that you can use on a daily basis in life or work.
1: So why, why the name Atomic Habits? So I get the habits bit. Why atomic? What's the, what's the distinction there?
2: Sure. Yeah, good question. So there are uh, multiple levels to the meaning. So the first one, you know, atoms are very small. They're a smallest fundamental unit. So uh, that idea is that small habits and uh, tiny changes can add up to something remarkable in the long run. And so I like it for that reason, for the small reason. But there's another meaning that an atom or the word atomic signifies, which is that it's the smallest fundamental unit of a larger system. So atoms uh, build into molecules and then molecules create compounds and so on. And I think we could say in a similar way, habits are sort of the fundamental unit of our life. Uh, They're the behaviors and patterns and rituals that we repeat day in and day out. And if you can get those rituals and behaviors aligned and uh, moving in the right direction, then you can end up with a really effective system, sort of this great uh, positive machine in your life. And the third and final meaning is that atomic can be uh, the source of immense energy or power. And that's kind of the, the ultimate punchline of this, is that if you can build these small habits and create an effective system for change, then you can end up with really powerful and remarkable results.
1: So if we... If we build upon that, I've heard you talk about the aggregation of marginal gains. Is that kind of the sense of what you're writing in this book, James?
2: Yeah, that's correct. So the aggregation of marginal gains is this idea that if you can make a bunch of little 1% improvements, uh, in my language, many small habits, and have that all organized toward the same end result, so a collection of habits that are all part of a system uh, that are organized towards one outcome, like getting healthy or making more money or building a business or writing a book. And this col- these collections of habits, collection of fitness habits or health habits or creative habits, um, if you can make those small changes, those 1% improvements and aggregate all those little marginal gains, then you can end up with a really significant outcome uh, once you put
1: them all together. What's driving a habit? So you talked about the, the neuroscience or the science behind habits, and we've heard about that since we were kids. What actually drives a habit?
2: Well, there are a couple ways to think about what spurs or motivates a habit. One way that I like to break it down is with what I call identity-based habits versus outcome-based habits. So often when we think about a change that we'd like to make in our lives, we start with some outcome-based focus. So, for example, you think, you know, I'd like to lose 20 pounds in the next six months or I would like to earn – six figures in the next year, or I would like to write a book in the next year, something like that. It's very outcome-focused, very results-focused. But I think there are actually multiple layers or levels of behavior change. So you can imagine them sort of like the layers of an onion. So the, the outermost layer is the result that you're looking for, so writing a book or losing weight. The next layer in is the process that you would follow. So typically, the conversation for behavior change only includes these two layers. We say something like, I'd like to write a book, And my process for doing so is I'm going to write every Tuesday for an hour. And so we have a goal and then we have a plan for achieving that goal. But I think there's actually one layer deeper, one level deeper of behavior change and the the center of those kind of concentric circles. And that is what I would call identity or the set of beliefs and values and principles that you follow or the implicit biases that you have when you walk around the world. So your, your mindset to a certain degree. And the important point here is that, it's not that one level is better or worse than another, but by starting or shifting your focus to identity rather than outcome, you end up um, putting yourself in a better position to build habits in the long run. So for example, you could imagine um, you know, and if you wanted to to continue this fitness example, if you wanted to say, I'd like to lose 20 pounds in the next six months. Well, then the question to actually ask yourself is, who is the type of person that could lose weight? And then you realize, well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. That would be their identity. And so then your focus shifts to, how can I become the type of person who doesn't miss workouts? And you start to to do things a little bit differently. It becomes less about how difficult the workout is or whether the scale is moving And more about, am I putting my reps in? Am I showing up? Am I getting to the gym each day? Am I building that identity and fostering that that, uh, type of person? And this, I think, is the ultimate reason that habits really matter, is that they, it's not just that they can give us better results, like make us more productive or help us lose weight, but they also inform our sense of self. The more that you repeat a habit, the more you build up evidence of a particular identity. It's sort of like, Every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you want to become. So if you go to the gym 30 days in a row, then you have more evidence that you're the type of person who works out. If you study Spanish every Tuesday night for an hour, then you have evidence that you're the type of person who is studious. And the more that you repeat these habits, the more you accumulate evidence of the identity and ultimately your beliefs and self-image start to shift as well.
1: This is a really interesting area. James, and I I just want you to tell the story about the guy who went to the gym and he turned up, I think it was for a month or so, but went there for two minutes to form an identity, but how that fed into him then being able to create a new habit.
2: So, yeah, so I'll tell the story in just a second. As another example, you can imagine, imagine two people who are trying to quit smoking and the first person says, you know, you offer them a cigarette and they say, oh, no, thanks. Like I'm trying to quit. And then the second person, you offer them a cigarette and they say, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. Now, uh, both of these people could be trying to do the same thing, but the, the second person identifies as someone who doesn't smoke. And the first person still, even though they're trying to change is identifying as a smoker. And so it's a, it's a subtle shift, but the difference is when you have adopted a new identity, you're actually no longer pursuing behavior change. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe that you are. So it's it's kind of one thing to say that I'm the type of person who wants this, but it's something very different to say I'm the type of person who is this. And once you believe that you are that way, then you have every reason in the world to continue acting in alignment with that because it, it reinforces the beliefs about yourself. So as you mentioned, I have, I have a reader who he ended up losing over 100 pounds, and um, the way that he did it. One of the things that he did was for the first six weeks, he went to the gym and he had a rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would go, he'd do, you know, maybe an exercise or something, and then we'd get to five minutes and he would leave. And it sounds a little ridiculous to people when they first hear about that. But what you realize is that he's actually approaching this in the exact opposite way that most people try to handle behavior change. Most of the time, we think about what we want and maybe we're sitting in bed at night thinking like, okay, I finally need to get in shape. I'm going to go run in the morning or something, or I'm going to join CrossFit or I'm going to do some, you know, really intense workout program. And you get all amped up and then you bite off more than you can chew. You, you know, go and do something really intense for a week or two, or maybe a month, but then you burn out. And what you don't do when you're approaching it that way is you don't master the art of showing up. And so any habit, A habit must be established before it can be improved. And there are all sorts of logistical details that are associated with building a new habit that most of us overlook when we're focused only on the outcome. You know, most of the time we think about how we want to change, we think, all right, I'd like to lose this weight or I'd like to, you know, achieve some type of goal. And it's all outcome focused, it's all finish line focused. And so the line that I like to use is that we should optimize for the starting line, not the finish line. Because once you optimize for the starting line, you figure out a variety of things. Like, take for example this reader. He, uh, you know, he wanted to go to the gym, but there are a bunch of questions you have to figure out. There. Okay, which gym will I go to? What route will I take to get there? What time will I go each day? Do I go with a friend or do I go by myself? Um, you know, what do I have to get uh, ready to go to the gym? Do I need a water bottle? Do I need my clothes? Do I have to pack those things before I go to work or afterward? And nobody thinks about any of those questions when you're starting out. But if you just focus on the first two minutes of the behavior. And this is my recommendation. He did five minutes, but I would recommend that you can scale pretty much any habit down into the first two minutes and just try to master that. So read one book becomes read one page or do 30 minutes of yoga becomes take out your yoga mat. And these things don't seem impressive by themselves, but what they allow you to do is master the art of showing up. And once you have done that, then you have the chance to optimize and improve from there. And it's only once it's a habit that you even have any option to improve. And so, you know, my reader, he got to six weeks and he was like, I'm coming here all the time. I might as well start doing something (laughs) else or figure out the right program to do or expand it, right? Which is a very powerful place to be in comparison to, I really worked hard for a month, but now I feel burnout.
1: So I think this is really interesting, James, because we had Logan Gelbrick from Deuce Gym in California on the show a little while ago, and he talked about focusing on the process, not the outcome. However, it sounds like you're putting a step right before that is to build your identity that I am the guy who gets there on time. I'm the guy who is prepared. I am the guy who shows up. I'm the person who sets the standard, whatever it may be. But it seems to be that's the identity we build. Then we focus on the process to deliver that to hit our outcome. Would that be? a fair assessment of where you're going with this? So
2: I also believe that the process or the system is where you should spend most of your time rather than the outcome or the goal. But the difference or the distinction that I'm making here is that the system or the process should be identity-oriented rather than outcome-oriented. So you're building a system to become the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, or you're building a system to become the type of person who writes each day, or become the type of person who gets their one minute of meditation in each time. So the the process is focused on developing the identity and then letting the outcome and the results kind of naturally proceed from there.
1: When do goals become unuseful?
2: Well, I think first it's important to point out that goals are not totally useless. They can be helpful for setting a a sense of direction or figuring out like, where am I moving or what am I working toward? But after that, I sort of think it's useful to mostly put the goal on the shelf. And I, I say this as someone who is, heavily goal oriented for many years so i would set goals for the type of uh grades i wanted to get in the gym the type of weights i wanted to, or sorry the type of grades i wanted to get in school the type of uh weights the, that i wanted to lift in the gym the results i wanted in my business like pretty much everywhere i was writing down goals and trying to hit them and i might have reached a few of them but a lot of the time i failed and what i realized was well if that's the case then setting the goal can't be the thing that makes the difference here because sometimes i set goals and nothing happens. And other times I set goals and I achieve them. So what is actually moving the needle? And I think it comes back to this process, comes back to building a system of habits and behaviors that are moving you in the right direction. And so one, to answer your question, one time when goals are no longer useful is when you realize that the goal only changes your life for the moment. You know, like if you, if you set a goal to clean a messy room and then you get really motivated and you clean that room, well, you have a clean room for now, but if you haven't changed the system of behaviors behind what led to a messy room, if you haven't changed the habits, then you're going to end up with a messy room again in two, two weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever it is. And so the, the point here is that if your focus is only on achieving goals, then you often end up treating symptoms without treating the cause. What you really need, we think that what we need is our results to change, but what we actually need is for the process behind those results to change. And this makes perfect sense if you think about it, like your whatever results you have right now in your life, in your business, wherever your results are your current system, your current habits is perfectly organized to deliver your current results. It has to be by definition. And so if you want different results, then you need to design a different system. You need to design different habits um, and different rituals to lead to a new outcome.
1: You Just to expand upon that, you did a show with Jay Ferugia and I think Jay does terrific work. a bit of a fan. In that show, you talked to Jay about eliminating your two-minute interventions that can take us in the wrong direction. So we're focused on the identity, the process, taking us towards a useful goal. What are the two-minute interventions that can take us away from what we're focused on?
2: So... I like to refer to this as a decisive moment, and there are probably five to 10 decisive moments throughout each day that end up shaping your day in a very meaningful way. So if you if you look at the research, depending on what study you look at, it'll say something like, habits make up 40 to 50% of your behaviors on any given day, are habitual and automatic. So this is things like tying your shoes and you know all the other habits that you think of. Um, that's a fairly large percentage. Half of the things that you're doing each day are habitual already, but I think actually the true impact of our habits is much greater than that because habits often act as like an on-ramp to, uh, to the next behavior. So for example, if you are waiting in line and you pull your phone out, uh, just you're standing there, that little action that, you know, 10 second choice or three second choice of pulling your phone out of your pocket. That only takes um, a second, and it's habitual. You do it without thinking. But the next 10 minutes might be you playing a video game or responding to email or browsing social media. And all of those choices, some of them might be conscious. You might be thinking through carefully, how do I respond to this? Or what should I read? Or you know, what's uh, what do I think of this tweet? Or whatever. But all of that was constrained by the first action, by pulling the phone out of your pocket, that habitual choice. And I think that we need to be careful about what you know, what little habitual actions like that are nudging us throughout the day. Little automatic things that we don't even think about that can send us running off in the wrong direction. And then, how can we design? And this is some of the the two minute rule that we mentioned earlier. How can we design two minute uh, habits or small little entry points that can send us in the right direction? So, take for example, um, take for example the common habit of playing video games. So you might. Get home from work and feel exhausted or stressed and uh, there's video game controller sitting on the ground and you fire the console up and you start playing right away and then all of a sudden an hour has gone by. And uh, what you find is that that action of walking in, sitting down and picking up the controller, that's pretty much habitual. But again, it ends up shaping like the next hour. You're thinking carefully about what to do in the game or what strategy you should follow. Mm-hmm. But all of that was already pre-decided by the first two minutes. So perhaps you can redesign the environment to remove that distraction a little bit. And this comes back to sort of the central question that you're asking here, which is that you could, you know, take the video game controller and put it inside a drawer or have the console in like a cabinet and the television inside a wall unit so you don't see it. So it's a little less visible. You could take the remote control for the TV and put it inside uh, the coffee table or underneath um, the coffee table so you don't see it as much. Put a book in its place. You could, if you wanted to get really extreme, you could unplug the television uh, and put it in the closet and only take it out when you really wanted to play it, really wanted to watch something. But the point here is that if you walk into pretty much any living room, all the couches and chairs face the television. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? Designed to get you automatically into So if you can reshape the space a little bit, then you uh, remove that little two-minute entry point and you make it more likely that you fall into something positive rather than something negative. Uh, and that's not to say video games have to exclusively be negative, but the example <laughs> here is your point. you can do the same thing with your digital spaces, right? So like your phone, uh, if you look at the home screen of my phone, I have no apps on there. So they're all I have to swipe over twice and then enter a nested folder to find any of the social media apps. And, you know, that's only three seconds away, but it's at least a little bit more friction so that I, I don't just tap it mindlessly because it's right in front of me as soon as I turn it on. And uh, that's sort of the point. So you want to put more steps between you and the bad behaviors and fewer steps between you and the good behaviors.
1: You also suggest making a list, don't you, of like what are the what are the the derail your habits list? And the example I heard you talk about was your mum who wanted to go to the gym but was challenged by it. So you actually made a list. Can you share exactly what you did? Because I think it's a really good example for people to break down what these derail your habit things are by putting them on paper.
2: So, uh, this is a, I think an effective strategy to do as an individual or as a business, but you essentially map out the chain of behaviors that are associated with any habit. So in my mom's example, uh, she wanted to work out more consistently. And if you map out the behaviors, uh, she was going to go work out at a local gym and, uh, there were a variety of things that had to happen. So she needed to pack up her clothes before she went to work. because She was going to go right afterward. Then she would need to drive to the gym. Then she'd have to go in and change and then work out there. And if you mapped out each one, there were certain things that she didn't really mind. Like she didn't really mind going to the gym or working out. But she found that she really didn't like working out publicly in front of other people. That like made her uncomfortable. Um, And it also annoyed her to have to get her stuff ready um, at the beginning of each day and kind of pack all that up. So she got like a home yoga DVD. And now she suddenly has eliminated those two points of friction. She doesn't have to pack her clothes anymore. She can just drive home after work. And uh, she doesn't have to work out in front of other people. She can just put the yoga uh, program on and do it in the living room or in the basement or wherever. And uh, the point here is that whatever the particular area of friction is for your habit, it's going to be different depending on you and your needs and wants and whatever the habit is that you're facing. I was able to do something similar for uh, for building a flossing habit. So, you know, for many years I brushed my teeth uh, in the morning and in the evening, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And when I mapped out the the behavior and broke it down into each little step, I realized that there were two things that were going against me. The first was I wouldn't remember to do it because the floss wasn't obvious. So, like it would be you know tucked away in a drawer, I just wouldn't see it. And then the second thing was I, for whatever reason, I found it annoying to have to take the floss out and wind it around my finger. And, um, it was like a little bit, you know, mildly painful and it was just a a hassle. So what I did was I bought some of the pre-made flossers, the little picks, and then a, um, a small bowl. And I placed the bowl right next to my toothbrush on the counter and then put the flossers in there. And now, as soon as I put down my toothbrush, I pick up a flosser and, and floss right then. So it happens immediately. And uh, just by removing those two points of friction, by making it more obvious and by making it a little bit easier, um, I was able to build a flossing habit without having to really do anything else. And you can do that for pretty much any habit. Just map out the chain of behaviors, break it down as small as possible and try to figure out which of these points of friction is causing me a little bit of hassle and how can I readjust this to
1: to get around that. The front of your phone is, you described it as very clean. So if you need to get to your socials, you have to do a degree of work to get to them. And you don't describe yourself as a minimalist so far, because that's a minimalist view of it. You refer to yourself as an optimalist, which I love. I think that was, for me, just a great distinction between being a minimalist and an optimalist. How does being an optimalist show up in your day, James? Like what are the things you do? What does being an optimalist mean and how does it show up in your day?
2: Well, so the, you know, the idea that I like to keep in mind with this is that I'm not looking to get to the fewest number of things, which I think would be pure minimalism. Um, I'm looking to get to the optimal number of things and the optimal number of things, of course, is going to depend on your particular goals and what you want out of life. But for me, I enjoy optimizing and tweaking and improving. And so uh, how it impacts my day or what that looks like on a given day, well, the first thing is that it forces me to simplify a little bit because you can't be optimal with everything. And so I have to say no to a lot of things. Sometimes that's the same stuff everybody else is saying no to, You know, just random requests that come in via email or things like that. But it also means saying no to some things that are would be a good use of time but are not a great use of time. For example, I would love to learn music. I would love to learn how to play a musical instrument. I've never done anything musical. um, But if I want to be great or optimize some of the other things that I'm already decent at, like writing or weightlifting or photography, those are kind of three of the big things that I care a lot about. um, Then I I can't afford to pick up other stuff because it's going to, something has to give, right? There's always a trade-off. There's an opportunity cost there. And so... One way that I've, you know, sort of uh, worked around that is that I like to think about life in seasons. So like right now, it's kind of a writing season for me. You know, like I I just finished this book. Uh, I've been writing consistently for a few years now. Let me share my work with people for, you know, maybe a decade and see what that looks like. And then I can reassess. And if I want to continue, maybe I will. If I want to transition to a new season, well, then maybe that's the time that I learn an instrument or do something else um but i i can't do it all and so i need to make sure that i stay focused similarly i don't have children and this yet. is helping you, know, you make choices here, kids,
1: sorry so. go go you go
2: well i was just saying you know i don't, similarly i don't have children and so like that allows me to focus a little bit more on the work right now so it's kind of like a career heavy season but soon i'm gonna have a family and so you know what's that look like that's that shifts a little bit so there's and everybody goes through this, right? We all deal with this in our own ways throughout life. But um, if I have this optimizing mindset, and I do, then I think I need to, to be careful about what is getting my attention and not fracturing it too thinly so that I can actually optimize and continue to improve in a few key areas.
1: So this is, this is leading to you, and I think this is something that you are very, very good at, is making choices, particularly from a family perspective, which is the ultimate, right through to work and the choices you make in wellness and health and reading and so on. And you call it choice architecture. What's the psychology behind that, James? What do you go through in your mind, in your choice architecture to know that you're making the choice that suits you the most for fulfillment? How, what goes on in your mind? How, do you have questions you ask, a process you follow? Well, it's a really
2: good question. I mean, first I should just say, like, I don't have this all figured out. Um, it, you know, it's quite possible <laughs> that my approach is, is incorrect or that, you know, I'm uh, I'm not approaching it uh, properly or I'll, you know, I'll continue to update and expand and improve my approach as time goes on. I mean, you know, learning is, is endless. But uh, currently... I like to think about it. Also, oh, first, I sort of divide, uh, I divide it into like two categories. So the first category is decision making, which you just references as choices. The second category is habits, and your decisions determine the amount of leverage that you have available to you. So, for example, you could decide that you're going to start a business, and you know one option is you could start a local pizza parlor. And another option is you could start a new technology company, a software company. And you're going to work hard on either of those businesses. But one of them, I would imagine probably the software company, is going to have a very different trajectory possible for it. It's going to have the ability to scale much faster, um, higher revenues, and so on. And whether that's the right choice or not depends on a bunch of other factors, but my point here is that your initial decision determines the amount of leverage that you have. And that's true not just for starting a business, but it's, you know, it's true for all sorts of things. And your habits, so the second category, determines how far along that path you walk. So you could decide to start a technology company, and maybe the path, the trajectory is just a rocket ship up into the right. But if you don't have good habits, then you don't get to capture any of that value. There have been many good ideas that have just died as an idea. Um, Meanwhile, someone else could start the pizza parlor, and maybe the trajectory isn't quite as steep. It's not, not quite as hockey stick of a growth. But if they have great habits, then they can walk pretty far along that path and end up in a really successful place. And. Uh, again, this is just a business example. Example, but I think that point—that your decision making creates the leverage or determines the amount of opportunity available to you—and your habits determine how much of that opportunity you capture. I like to think about both of those and how they work together. And so, when I'm making choices, um, if we just focus on the first category, I don't—I I don't think I can say that I have a strict process for making decisions. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure that. A strict process, like a checklist, for example, is the most effective way to make better mm-hmm. decisions because it's um, – you're making decisions all day long. You're making decisions you know, a thousand times throughout the day, and you don't have the time to go through a checklist. So you sort of need to implicitly internalize a lot of good decision-making heuristics and good decision-making fundamentals so that you can draw on them naturally – uh, whenever the time comes, like, for example, once you learn basic arithmetic, uh, if someone asks you, what is seven times eight, you don't have to think to give the right answer. You just are, you're not, you know, you're not like necessarily going through a multiplication table again. You're just relying on this heuristic you've already learned of how math works. And I think the same thing is probably true of decision-making. You want to internalize the fundamentals of good decisions, the fundamentals of, um, the fundamental mental models and ideas that shape the world so deeply that you can just draw on them implicitly whenever you need. And I think one way to do that is by reading widely and Charlie Munger's approach of collecting sort of a lattice work of mental models and having a variety of ideas from all the big disciplines and utilizing those together and seeing how they overlap. So, for example, um, one of my favorite mental models is inversion. And the, the ancient Stoics used to practice this. They would have a, a, medit- a practice that they called uh, the premeditation of evils, where they would imagine, you know, what would happen if I were homeless, or if I lost the ability to walk, or if my spouse left me? And the point here is not to make yourself depressed, but to think through these scenarios and try to figure out how would I develop a mental fortitude to deal with that, and more importantly... How do I prevent that now? What steps can I take to avoid that outcome? How can I avoid doing something stupid that might lead to this undesirable uh, outcome? And once you've internalized that model, that mental model of inversion, well, whenever you're facing a big decision, you can think about that. You can you know, pull it out and think like, okay, what's the, um, what's the opposite of what we want here? All right, we want to have more customers in our business. Okay, how would we drive customers away? Well, we, Let's make sure we don't do any of those things. Um, or we want to lose weight. Okay, how would I gain the most weight possible? Let me make sure that I don't have like sweets everywhere in the house and that, um, you know, all that type of stuff. So you're able to, to use inversion um, to reveal some of the mistakes that you don't want to make. And that's just one mental model. You know, there are probably yeah. 50 to 100 that are kind of key. And once you've internalized those, you can draw on them whenever you need to make better decisions.
1: If we just take that little off-ramp into learning and reading – it seems audiobooks are part of your daily habits or routines. And I've heard you say that you listen to audiobooks on 1.25 times speed. Did you have to build up to that? How do you find it? Is that, is that done for a particular reason? Do you just prefer it like that? Like, just tell us about, do you still do that? And why, why do you do that and how does it work?
2: I do listen to them at 1.25x. Uh, I did not have to build up to it. In my opinion, that's the one speed that I could get to that I didn't feel like I needed to build up to. It was like, okay, I kind of want you to get to the point here. It's taking a little bit longer than I would like, um, but it still sounds fairly natural to listen at that speed, at least to me. Um, I have friends who will listen at two, some even three X. I don't even understand how that's possible (laughs) or even really productive because they're when you're listening that fast. um, You know, I like to take notes while I read and I take notes because it helps me um, internalize the concepts, but also because, you know, I'm trying to write things down so that I can draw upon and then, you know, merge the ideas from 10 different books into an article. And, uh, so for me, that's kind of part of the work process in addition to just my own personal learning. So I need the speed to be, uh, slow enough that I can write a sentence out. If some, if an idea strikes me as I'm listening to a book and that's sort of the speed where I don't really have to pause that much. I can, I can write a sentence and let it keep going. And, uh, I, I still know where we're at and like, I'm not really losing context there as I'm listening. And that, that helps a lot because now I don't have to stop to take notes, which Mm -hmm. lets me finish books much faster.
1: It's interesting. I think it's important that people try it, but don't think it's for everyone because I was traveling yesterday with my wife in the car with some interviews you had done on 1.25. And my wife, after about an hour said, are you taking any of this in? I said, what do you mean? She said, I can't concentrate. She said, I can't take any of this in. But it's interesting that it particularly depends on who was being interviewed. This a podcast. depends on who was being interviewed. So I think it's something to try, but it's not for everybody. But number two is what's your process for learning from books, audiobooks, podcasts, James? Because I've read that people are consuming a lot, but to consume is one thing, but to turn that into knowledge takes – Recording, comprehending, testing, trying, failing, succeeding, to eventually turn that into wisdom. You seem to be able to to navigate that course well. How do you do that? So you listen to something or you read something. How do you log, take it in, process it, store it? What's your, how do you do it? Well, thank
2: you. Um, yeah, it's it's not a surprise that. Um, I guess I should just say, yeah, I agree. You don't need to listen to it faster. It really doesn't matter. It's just that that process works for me um, and was more important. I also think there's kind of an implicit uh, bias for some people. If they listen to an audiobook on 2X and it's like, well – is the point to say that you finish like fifty books this year, or <laughs> that you learned something? Um, you know, like there's. So I, th- I think it's better to read five five great books and uh, internalize the concepts deeply than it is to listen to fifty books at two x speed and not really get a whole lot out of it. But um, yes, so for making the most out of books, there are a couple things that uh, that I I think help me do that. So the first thing is I take notes as I read, which I mentioned earlier. When I finish a book, I try to summarize it in three sentences or less. And uh, that's just like a little game, of course. But it forces me to be careful and think about what is the core idea that this book is sharing? Um, What's the main thing that I got out of this? So that's helpful. Then uh, there are two steps that I think really make the difference for internalizing. So the first is you you can sort of look at a book kind of like a knowledge tree where there's like a few fundamental ideas that form the trunk. And then there are a bunch of supporting details that make up the branches. And as you're going through a book, those, you know, those few fundamental ideas that make up the trunk, that might be what I'm covering in that three-sentence summary. But the branches, well, there's all kinds of stuff that that could connect to. And so I try to connect knowledge trees as I'm listening to a book. So where, where can one branch from this book connect to another branch from another book? Uh, and where's that overlap? And the power of that is that it helps like tighten it in my brain a little bit. It secures the ideas in my mind because it gives me another way to hook uh, this concept into something else I already know. And um, there's some really useful insights there. A lot of the time, the most interesting ideas occur at the intersection of disciplines, you know, like in the. In the library, we organize uh, topics, and in school, we organize topics by category, biology, history, English. But in the real world, ideas are not organized that way. Uh, there's, everything is related. There's overlap, and one, you know, one area bleeds into it. And so I like to try to perform that process a little bit myself and try to link ideas. The second thing that I do is that – so I, I'm just kind of doing that in the notes as I'm, as I'm reading or listening to a book – But the second thing that I do is that I write about these ideas. You know, I mean, I've written 300 articles on jamesclear.com now, and most of what I've written has come out of what I've read. And so I find that in many cases, I don't really know what I think about something until I write about it. And being able to have this, this set of notes that I took to go back to, and then again, trying to integrate that with a bunch of other things I've read in the past. And then eventually, you know, the seeds of an article start to come out of that. And I can start to layer things together, and then I have an article that I want to write that's about something that was spurred or sparked from the, uh, the book that I read. And the process of writing the article is really where I come to learn the topic because you know there's a – sometimes this is called the Feynman technique, which is uh, named after Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, which is the – if you want to figure out if you know something, write the concept at the top of a piece of paper – And then write down your explanation or how you would explain it to someone who had never heard of the concept before. So you can't use any jargon. You can't use any um, lingo from the, the industry. You just have to explain it to somebody who is a beginner, an outsider. And in many ways, I try to do this with my articles. I try to distill the idea to its essence and explain it in the simplest, most actionable, practical way possible. And the process of doing that is when I actually learn what the idea is. That's that's how I force myself to internalize it, is by teaching it in the straightforward and simplest way. And so um, those are really the two key steps, the linking of knowledge trees and the writing of the ideas afterward that help internalize what I read.
1: Well, what's really good is where the rubber hits the road. And you've actually published books that you like and summarized them into a couple of sentences that people can get from your website, James?
0: Yeah,
2: that's correct. I have a, if you just click on favorites, uh, there's a book yeah. summaries uh, page there. And um, yeah, I have, I don't know, dozens, if not hundreds of books that I've kind of done these three sentence summaries and posted my notes for and stuff. Partially so that I can go back and reference them quickly, but also so that
1: readers can uh, can see them as well. Is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield one of those books?
2: Yes, I believe so. Uh, I've certainly read it. I can't remember if I read that before I started posting my summaries or not.
1: And the reason I asked the question, because I think that is a cracking book, particularly the first half of the book where he delves into the resistance. So all the reasons why you can't, all the reasons, all the justification why not today, oh, it's different for me. And what I'm curious about is I reckon that people listen to a lot of podcasts, audiobooks, read books, and the resistance kicks in. And then the second part I guess for you specifically is when you are writing a book everybody goes through this resistance of all the justification all the two minute interventions we need to go through how do you personally fight the resistance all the all the stuff that could distract us all the stuff that could stop us from doing something like what's James Clear's approach to resistance
2: well there are a few different ways to approach this problem so Uh, The first one is you need to scale it down and make it as easy as possible to start. So whenever possible, you want to help yourself along by reducing the friction associated associated with starting. So this comes back to the two minute rule that we mentioned earlier. Like I have a writer, a friend who um, his daily habit is to write one sentence. He's a poet. So sometimes he'll write an entire poem. Sometimes he'll write a couple pages and some days he only writes one sentence. But it needs to be easy uh, on the good days so that you can stick with it on the hard days. It needs to be very simple. So that's the first thing is let's reduce the size of the resistance. Um, you know, writing, writing an article every day. Well, yeah, you might have a fair bit of resistance associated with that, but writing one sentence like that, you know, that's pretty easy. Um, so that's the first piece. The second thing is that we often internalize the habits of those around us. And so having a group of people who their desired behavior, or sorry, their normal behavior is your desired behavior, that can be a big thing. So for example, when I started out uh, and launched jamesclear.com, I didn't really have friends who were writers. I I don't really have many authors in my family, at least not at that time. Um, I didn't really have uh, that many friends who were writers. So I needed to develop that network. Now, today, I know tons of authors. And that helps a lot because when I run into a sticking point, I can talk to them. In addition to that, I just see them putting books out all the time. So I'm like, yeah, of course, people write books. This is what everybody around me is doing. So it feels very normal. Um, The same thing is true for, for pretty much any habit, you know, like you can, Going to the gym, building an exercise habit, it sounds like a lot of work to many people and it feels like a sacrifice, but there are people out there who it doesn't feel like work to them. That's just normal. They just, that's just what they do each week. Um, And if you can find that group, if you can join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior, then that I think really helps overcome the resistance because there are going to be those days for everybody when they don't feel like showing up. But when you look around, you see everybody else doing it, too. You're like, well, I don't really feel like it, but I guess I'll keep doing it today. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's a a caveat to this, a a key that I don't usually hear people talk about, which is the thing that cements this that really makes you want to act that way is friendship. It's a a feeling of belonging uh, with that tribe. So, for example, if you join a gym and you gain some friends there, well, then, yeah, you have a strong reason to, to go to that gym, because even if you don't feel like working out that day, well, you still get to see some of the people that you like, or even if you don't feel like writing that day, well, you know, you can still chat with one of your author friends on Skype or, you know, on Facebook or whatever. And, uh, that really, it's the sense of belonging that really compels you. And that's why I think, you know, like my friend, Steve cam, he runs a, a website in a business called nerd fitness. And I think it's a great example of this principle, which is that It's all about fitness. It's all about getting in shape. But he specifically has branded the company for people who identify as nerds, for people who like Star Wars or who like superheroes and Batman and Spider-Man and um, Legos and all that type of stuff. And so (laughs) you can imagine the first time that you go to the gym, like you feel a little out of place. But if you get to connect with people, you know, if you can build a friendship over something else, over Star Wars, for example, then you're like, well, I'm already friends with this person. Like now maybe I'll take on some of their habits, too. And often this is sort of an implicit assumption. So I think the I think the key or the way to phrase this is one, join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. And two, you already have something else in common with that person or that group. So you can bond over the other thing and then you can start to adopt the habits and hang out with them um in the the desired way as well.
1: I interviewed a guy called Benjamin Spall, who wrote a book about routines and rituals, James. And One thing we discussed was that by having a set routine or ritual, then inevitably it can help you with willpower because you say, that's my routine, that's my ritual, that's what I do, which can help with the distractions or going down the not so positive habits by saying, well, that's just what I do because that's my ritual. And it's almost giving yourself permission to do the right thing and to not do the wrong thing where do rituals and routines meet habits are they the same thing are they different because i know you have written in this book about habits being a great way to help with willpower yet it seems willpower is something that we are sadly lacking in society Where's the intersection of those things, or are they the same?
2: Well, it gets a little muddy because of how we use those terms on a daily basis. So, you know, for example, people might say something like, uh, I want to build a habit of working out. Well, if you're being technical about it, then a habit is an automatic behavior or a behavior that's performed more or less automatically, often non-consciously. Well, are you going to go to the gym and work out for 45 minutes totally on autopilot and not really be thinking consciously the whole time? No, of course not. Uh, But we still say that for – the distinction that I would make, and uh, the same thing is true for ritual and routine. Like we kind of blend those terms to mean different Mm. things. But – The distinction I would I would make is that uh, your habits should be the ritual or the um, the automatic set of behaviors that you do are really early on to initiate a behavior. So the first two minutes, for example, and uh, so you make that a habit, make that as automatic as possible, make the beginning as automatic as possible. And then it can naturally extend into a routine, which is a repeated pattern of behavior. Again, this is like the technical definition a routine is a, is a repeated pattern. It doesn't necessarily have to be automatic though. So, you know, what you do at the gym, the exercises you do and where you go about that. Yeah, that's like, that's your workout routine. Um, but you might be thinking about it carefully or concentrating on a particular exercise or something like that. Um, so it might not be automatic and habitual, but it is uh, repeated and routine. But I think, uh, again, that's sort of like a semantic issue. The real, the important point is that, if you make the beginning as repeated and automatic and ritualized as possible, if you make it a habit, then it becomes much easier for your brain to kind of get into the right mode to do the next thing. So, for example, I played, um, I played baseball for a long time all the way through college. And one of the things that's a little bit of a pain about baseball is that there are so many games. And so coaches are always saying things like, you need to find a way to be motivated today. we got to find a way to be up today. You need to be ready to play. And for anybody, there's going to be some days where you show up and you just don't really feel like it. You're not motivated. So you got to come up with a system for dealing with that. And so for me, I would do the same ritual at the beginning of every game. I would do the same stretches in the same order for the same amount of time, same type of warm ups and throws, uh, run along the outfield wall in the same way. And the whole thing would take me about 15 minutes. But by the time I got done with it, it was like a switch had been flipped and my brain was like, Oh, okay, I need to be in game mode now. Like it's time to play. And, you can do that with pretty much any process, you know, so I have the, the same type of thing that I do for my writing routine. I wake up and I take a shower, I get a glass of water, I sit in the same spot and I open up um, Evernote and that's like my routine. Like by the time I get to that point, it's like, oh, okay, now it's time to write. And so in that way, I think rituals are important for initiating a process and then the conscious and effortful work can come after that. The routine can come after that. But the habit or the ritual is is what a good way to get it started.
1: When you sat and wrote this book and you went through your routines, you've now, the book is about to go out. Has anything changed in your mind, James, about the habits, routines, people enabling their dreams? Has anything changed in your mind since you wrote the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So a lot of things changed as I was writing the book. Um, you know, Penguin, I, I've been writing about habits for about four years uh, when I signed the book deal. And I had agreed to a, a two-year contract with Penguin to write it. And I had to come back to them and ask for an additional year as I got into the writing and research. And they very graciously gave me uh, the extra time. So it took me three years from start to finish uh, to uh, to complete the book. And I think that Atomic Habits is the most practical and comprehensive guide on how habits work and there were a lot of things that i had to learn to put that together so you know early on i thought that i had a decent understanding of how habits work but in fact i looking back i just kind of had like 30 or 40 ideas that were all sort of under the umbrella of habits i didn't understand how they all hung together and so that was the the single biggest thing that changed was atomic habits the first time that i've been able to lay out a system or a framework that I think accurately describes not only how habits work, but how to change them on a daily basis. You know, like I have these, one of the backbones of the book is this: the four laws of behavior change. And there's sort of these four levers that you can pull on for building good habits or breaking bad ones. And it took me a long time to come up with that because that was the framework that I needed to integrate all of these other 30 or 40 ideas that I had about habits. I knew, I knew all these little things worked in some circumstances or were helpful in others, but I needed to figure out like, how do they connect? And, uh, so that was the first time that I was sort of able to like, see the whole picture clearly rather than just like pixels here and there.
1: One thing I think that I've learned about your work is you're very good at distinctions and clarifying and laying it out to make it something that we as listeners or as readers can do. Tell me your distinction between being an amateur and being a professional. Hmm.
2: Well, so I wrote an article about this difference between professionals and amateurs. And one of the, the stories that or experiences that sort of sparked me to write it was that this was early on. This was years ago. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine named Todd Henry and Todd has now written, uh, I don't know, multiple books, five or more. And, uh, at the time he was a published author and I had never written a book. And I, you know, was talking to him about like, oh, I have this idea for this book I'm working on. And, um, you know, I find that I only write whenever I kind of feel inspired. Like, what do you think of that? And he mentioned a quote to me. It might be a Faulkner quote, but he said, Oh, well, you know, I, I only write, uh, when I feel inspired too, it just happens to be every day at 8 a.m. And that was when I realized like, oh, okay, there's a difference here, right? Like this is, so when you're an amateur, you do things when they're easy or when you're motivated, when you feel inspired, when you're a professional, you just show up and do the work. Um, and so was sort of this mindset shift, this, uh, this transition from doing things because they're easy or because they feel good uh, to doing things because this is the type of person I want to be. I want to be a pro at this work. And, uh, it took me, you know, probably a few more months before I was able to actually follow through fully on that distinction. But that was, that was the main way that I built jamesclear.com. I wrote a new article every Monday and every Thursday. And I did that for three years, um, until I signed the book deal. And so that, um, that's the process of, uh, of becoming a professional or what it looked like for me at least.
1: Mm. You just said, who is the person that I want to be or become? I'm interested, just to wrap this little shindig up, I'm interested in knowing if somebody was talking about James, <clears throat> excuse me, if somebody was talking about James Clear and giving you a compliment, what's the greatest compliment somebody could give you?
2: It's hard to say for sure. What is striking me right now is that um, his work matters. His work is helpful. Um, you know, I get something out of it like that. And mm. I, I I'm just trying to provide my little bit of useful information to you know my corner of the universe right like i i I don't have some grand plan for taking over the world or becoming famous (laughs) or anything like that i just i just want to be i just want to be helpful you know like i I just want i just want to share ideas that i feel like um matter for people and help them create a better life whatever that happens to be for them so uh it doesn't need to be grand um but hopefully it's respected and uh, And meaningful, and I think if if the work matters, then that's good enough for me.
1: When you think back through your career to this point, James, you've met some very impressive people. you hang out with a very impressive crowd. When you think back to somebody who said or did something that had a profound effect on you as a man today, was there something that happened, was said, or an event from someone or a mentor that has had that profound effect on you?
2: Well, I think this is probably true for many people, but the most meaningful mentors in my life are people that, you know, most people have never heard of. So, you know, my grandfather, my dad, um, really my entire family has been incredibly supportive of the creative projects and works that I've done. Um, And so these are not people that you would know their names. And they're also, uh, you know, to sort of tie this back in with our conversation about habits, there was not one moment that uh made the biggest difference with uh with those people you know like i mean i can remember very meaningful things my grandfather said to me or you know talking to him on his deathbed and things like that but the truth is the reason that those moments mattered so much is because of all the little things that came before and in many ways sometimes i think the main job of a parent is just to be there um just to be present that like you don't nobody has all the answers but I was very fortunate to have people who were just with me as I was going through things. And so whether that was something small or something big, and by the time, you know, a really memorable moment happened, like we had a really long body of evidence, like a big, uh, history of experience together. And so I don't think there's one thing that they said that, you know, made me a man or made me, um, develop me into who I am today. There were like a thousand little things and in the same way, I actually finish uh, the conclusion of Atomic Habits. I say something to the effect of, "The holy grail of habit change is not a single one percent change; it's a thousand of them. Uh, it's not your your life will not be radically transformed by a single one percent improvement. But if you're committed to the idea of making small improvements on a daily basis and collecting those habits and uh, accumulating them over time, well, yeah, then then you can experience a transformation." I think uh, my process of growth was very similar to that.
1: Michael Gervais from the Seattle Seahawks, the mental strength performance coach, said, he had this great saying. He said, game recognizes game. As a parent down the track, you will make the choice to be a parent. Is being present and being around, would that be, do you think, one of the primary philosophies you will take into parenthood to represent a game that you'd like your children to mirror?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to say because I'm not a parent yet. I'm sure I'll have many different uh, thoughts as I go through it and, you know, adjust my, um, my approach as time goes on. Um, You know, you're learning on the fly like every other parent. But uh, yeah, being present and spending time with them will be one of my biggest priorities um, and will be a, you know, a shift to that, uh, to that season of my life.
1: James, we appreciate you spending your valuable time with us, mate. This has been absolutely terrific. And I think there's no question that people will say that was useful time and that was a help. People will want to know more about you, your writing your there's a, a full body of work for people to check out, and the new book. Where do people find the book? Where do people find you?
2: Sure, so you can see all of my work at jamesclear.com, and I have uh, articles organized by categories and so on. So just feel free to poke around and see what interests you. If you'd like, you're welcome to sign up for the newsletter there. Uh, I think we have 430,000 people who receive that each week, so um, you'll be in good company. And Atomic Habits is the title of my uh, new book, and you can learn more about that at atomichabits.com.
1: Mate, thank you once again. I can appreciate how much you've got going on around the book, you're writing, and everything else in your world. But um, it's been a real treat and a real honor. So thank you, mate.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in
0: for a great treat right now. It's Ron Tiber on the Mojo Radio Show. This,
1: I, I'm going to say, this is one of the great discoveries that I've had in the last <laughs> week. I'm serious. Have you haven't stopped talking about this since I I have sensor become, to you? <laughs> I honestly have become a Jack White fan. The guy is so eclectic yeah. and you just would not expect what comes out of his mind. Now, Jack White is the leader of a band called the White Stripes, internationally successful band, truly know how to rock it out. And this was a clip that I found, and I will put the link to the whole clip in the show notes for everybody to have a look at, because i got to say if there's one guy I'd love to interview in the next decade, it would be Jack White. I find him absolutely fascinating. And he was on a show. What was it called, mate? Um, this, uh, This might get loud. This might get loud. And he was on there with The Edge and Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page from legendary Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And the three of them were talking, kind of sitting around. I think it's a movie, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm yet to find the whole thing. If someone out there knows where to find it, please tell me because I want to see it. But it's basically the three of them with guitars sitting around and then they talk about great rock songs that they've been a part of and how they were created. And then they sort of segue off into little bits about Jimmy and The Edge and Jack talking about their own personal way of guitaring and discovery and... I found this piece by Jack White, and I think it's an absolute cracker. I keep it uh, guitars that are, you know,
0: the necks a little bit bent, and it's a little bit out of tune, and I wanna work and battle it and conquer it and, and make it express whatever attitude I have at that moment. I, I want it to be a struggle. And this is uh, my main guitar that I played that live for like 10 years in the White Stripes. It's a hollow piece of plastic, and you got this at Montgomery Awards, department store, Sears sold Silvertones and Montgomery World sold Airlines. What can I do with three strings on a guitar instead of six? It takes me three steps to get over to it, to play the organ in the middle of this song. Put it four steps away.
1: Then I'll have to run faster and I'll push myself harder to get to it. Now, it's been said so many times on this show. It's only from struggle or discomfort, pain, or from pushing yourself that you embrace the suck and you grow to discover your own potential. And I just, what I love about Jack, he said, if the organ should be three steps away, I make it four. If the guitar should have six strings, what could I do with three? And I think what I take from this is Jack just illustrates that in everyday life, we can find that struggle to be better. And I would just challenge all of us to say, what's your version today? And you've heard the take stairs versus the elevator, but we hear it from more a or exercise thing. We don't hear it from what it's doing to us mentally in the struggle or don't have lunch versus having lunch or the nearest parking spot or take the furthest parking spot or a bag with wheels on one or a bag you have to carry. Sitting for the day or standing for the day. And honestly, I think that thing about the organ with one extra step just to make it hard for himself, it just goes to show why he is such an outstanding guitarist at his age. Imagine being invited to spend some time in a studio hanging out mm-hmm. with The Edge and <laughs> Jimmy Page. I mean, yeah. come on. Only a small honour. <laughs> Be like you and I being invited to hang out with Rogan and Tim Ferriss, yeah, that's like right. the podcast gods. You're like, what the what? hell am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you rang the wrong number. Yeah, exactly. this is but bo- this is boring Tennessee. But I'll turn up anyway. <laughs> yeah. So if you were gonna play a white stripes song to rock out Rocktober close as a tribute to Jack and Struggle, what would you play? Oh, I don't know. Let, I picked last week, you pick. All right, no. we are going to play. In fact, what I'm going to preempt this with, guys, is turn this up. This is the White Stripes Seven Nation Army, and we're out.